You right. don't want to be the kid in class who says, who admits, I don't know the answer. And it's only when you're an adult that you realize, no, there's actually a, a lot of power and a lot of strength that comes from just admitting that and saying, no, I, I don't know this. Can you teach me? Um, and it, it's, uh, it, it can be good for you, uh, but also uh, good for whatever partnerships that you have, whether it's inside your organization or outside. What's up, gang? Welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde. I'm so pumped to have you here with me. Now, listen, The Greatness Machine, we're about two things. Number one, people who are living their passions. And number two, those who are creating greatness in the world and doing both of these things despite the odds against them. Each episode, we're going to feature interviews with game changers, business leaders, you know, telling us their origin stories, what made them tick, what got them to where they are now. Why? So it can help you step into your greatness within your life, your business, and your career. Occasionally, you might hear a few solo episodes from myself, moi, as I say, as I leverage my 20 years of entrepreneurship as a CEO and founder to help you grow and level up in your journey to scale your life and your business. So come be a fly on the wall, enjoy the conversation, and I'm stoked to have you here with me. Guys, welcome to The Greatness Machine. I'm your host, Darius Mershazde, and boy, do we have a special guest today. My main man, Chris Hill, is in the house. Chris, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Darius. Thanks for having me. Oh, man. I, I've been so excited for this. So, uh, listeners of The Greatest Machine, you guys know that we're about two things. We're about people who are living their passions and those who are creating greatness in the world. And Chris is neither short of passion nor greatness. So, um, I set my team out on a hunt. And for you know, for listeners of the show, you'll... You, you may not know this. I'm going to I'm going to give you some some I'm going to spare my soul right now a little bit. But um, <laughs> um, I, you know, a lot of the guests are I, it's always, you know, I've I've really worked my network really hard to go and find guests. I know we've done about almost 200 shows now. And and I said, man, I got to get out, I got to get out of my comfort zone. I got to go find other greatness outside of the Darius network. So I set Noah and the team hunting and I said, you know, and this is, and Chris, this is really pertinent to you because you're going to know what was the premise on why we hit you up. And so I said, hey, let's go hit up top 100 podcasts. Let's go find the hosts of these shows, right? I want to talk to these guys and girls because, the, you know, they've done something super cool that I'm trying to do. And, uh, you know, I'm, I want to build a top podcast and, and we're in the process of doing that. So let's go because they've, you know, the, that's a, that's no small feat. So we went out, we've been, you know, beating the bushes and we hit, and we hit up Chris because he runs one of the top podcasts in the world, actually. It's Motley Fool Money. Um, and, and, and we'll be talking all about that on the show. But that was the reason why we, we hit you up, Chris. I don't know if you knew that or not. And, and that's what brought us here today. I did not know that, but uh, I was flattered to get the invite and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Definitely. So um, I do want to give a little bit of your formal bio, and then, we can, and then I'd love to dive right in. Are you cool with that? Absolutely. Awesome. So you guys, Chris Hill is the director of, of audio programming at The Motley Fool and the host of It's Motley Fool Money podcast. So it's, the, and you probably have heard it. They're all over, you know, syndicated all over the country, if, if not all over, all over the world. We could, uh, that's actually a question I have for you, but um, you oversee The Motley Fool's uh, audio programming and business strategies. And you also narrated the best-selling book, The Psychology of Money. Uh, and for listeners of the show, you know I'm I'm about all things core values, and uh, Chris is his top three core values are take a breath, take a break, and go for it. Um, so man, welcome to the show. I'm so so pumped to have you here. It's great to be here. Um, uh, I, I love these types of conversations. You know, yeah, you know, it's it's it's. I think the 
it's interesting to see where the world of media is going to it. And, you know, you know, I, I think that the conversations make the world go round, and obviously podcast has taken a huge leap in the forefront of what media is today, and, and you, you've been a big part of that. Um, you know, why don't, I'd love for you if you could take us back. I mean, right now you're doing all these amazing things at Motley Fool. I did a lot of research on your background at Motley Fool. You've been there since 97, um, came out of American University. Uh, with a master's and got in, went right into the Motley Fool world. But if you don't mind, like, take us back a little bit. How did you get into what you're doing right now? So I graduated from Boston College in 1990, um, worked for a few years, and found a, a weekend master's program in um, public communication at American University. I, I had moved from Boston to D.C., and um, I – enjoyed my job at the time. So I wasn't looking to leave work and go to school full time. So I, I basically had no life for close to two years because <laughs> I was working during the week and going to school on the weekends. And um, when I came out of that, um, started looking around and my background is in media and communications. And The Motley Fool was a company I had not heard of. Um, it was a very small and young company at the time. And they were looking for someone to head up media and PR. And so really for the first, I would say, dozen or so years at the company, that's mainly what I was doing, sort of um, dealing with the media a lot, um, being involved in uh, PR partnerships that our company would have, all that sort of thing. But because we were a small company, um, there was a lot of opportunity to do things beyond sort of whatever is your core job. And so one of the first things I worked on in 1997 was the Motley Fool radio show, sort of the creation of um, we started getting contacted by radio syndicators um, who were interested in taking the Motley Fool brand, which um, had a successful website. And David and Tom Gardner, the co-founders of the company, had written a couple of best-selling books about investing. And so then it, it sort of like, hey, what would you guys think about doing a weekly radio show? So I was involved in that behind the scenes. Um, cut to uh, it's the it's the Great Recession is happening in 2008. And um, my boss at the time, we, we were no longer doing a radio show. And my boss at the time, as you know, as our economy in America was melting down and, um, and our business, like a lot of businesses was, was really being challenged because when the market starts tanking, there are a lot of people who don't want to be invested in the stock market. Um, even though all of the data shows the longer you can hang in, the longer you can stay invested, the better you're going to do as an investor. Sure. But a lot of people just bail on that. And, and the, the main economic engine of The Motley Fool is investing newsletter services. So we had people sort of canceling their service at the time because they were just scared. Um, and understandably so. It was, it was a really scary time for the economy. But my boss at the time said, hey, should we think about doing a radio show again? And I sort of, you know, put some thoughts together on paper and ended up writing this five-page memo that sort of boiled down to, if we ever want to do radio again, we should try doing a podcast, which was a, a new medium in late 2008, early 2009. Sure. But I sort of laid out the reasons why. And we knew that David and Tom Gardner would not be able to host the show because they were busy leading our company and, and, and trying to keep us going during a tough time. And so the, the show that we created was sort of a 
a smaller weekly version of the show we do now. It's still Motley Full Money, but we, we launched that in February of 2009, and it was just me and a couple of our analysts spending 12 to 15 minutes really trying to do what we do at The Motley Fool, which is try to help people make sense of what's happening with businesses and what's happening on Wall Street. So um, taking a step back to this early, you know, doing a radio show, did you ever, I mean, and, and, you know, for listeners who are maybe a little younger, you know, podcast is, is, is in the zeitgeist now. That's like, I, I heard a joke that said like, uh, you know, a, this is like a year ago. They said a podcast in 2021 is like a cup of coffee in 2017. You know, like, like you invite people to come on your podcast. Right. And there's a lot of people that have podcasts. It's not, you know, the buried entry to open a podcast. Buried entry for all this content is much lower than it's ever been, but going back to 1997, right. And going back to the early two thousands, you know, the, and, I'll, and I'll just frame up like 1997, like Howard Stern was like probably one of the top radio shows in the country. Right. And, and it's still a big show that on, I think it's on series radio, but um, you know, radio was where it was at. And, and I think, I feel like podcast is kind of a, a, a it's a version of what radio has always been. Right. If you think of it, it it's kind of very similar, you know? Absolutely. And I think that um, w- once I started listening to podcasts on my own around the same time, you know, 2007, 2008, um, the convenience of it and the fact that it's a nascent media at the time. And so there's not really a lot of commercialization. There's not a lot of ads, that sort of thing. I just remember thinking, oh, I, I think this is going to be pretty big. I think once this catches on, once more people have smartphones what, and, and there are more programming options, people are going to find the thing that they like to listen to. And I remember early on because we – um, we had done Motley Fool Money for about a year when we made the conscious decision to expand the program to fit, because we already had the experience in producing uh, a syndicated radio show, first on commercial radio, then through NPR. That's so right. we figured out we can do a, what amounts to a weekly one-hour radio show for commercial radio. And we syndicated it ourselves. We still do. Um, and so... Uh, at the moment, it's on 75 radio stations. And really, that just came about from me contacting radio stations. And they were familiar with the Motley Fool brand. I would send them sort of a, a sample of the show, that sort of thing, and just sort of lay out like, hey, here's our show. Um, you guys get to keep all the advertising revenue. We're not looking to to monetize this show with advertising on radio stations. And I remember early on talking with um, – program directors, this is, you know, 2010, 2011, and podcasting is growing, but it's still pretty nascent. And one of the things I would say to program directors was, hey, look, um, you know, don't don't just take my word for it. Go on to iTunes and look at the reviews because there are people who are writing reviews on our show. And there was... A lot, I ran into so much skepticism from program directors and, you know, including a bunch who would just say, you know, this podcasting thing is a fad right. and it's, it's not going to last. And, it, you know, I didn't feel like it was my place to tell them, no, nah, actually, you're wrong about this. And talk radio is in more trouble than it thinks if it's if it's going to completely ignore podcasting. Yeah. And, um, you know, ours was the first show to make the leap from podcasting to also being available on commercial radio. And what you've seen since then is so many uh, radio shows that are on uh, far more stations than we are following suit and saying, okay, I want to make 
of my show available to a podcasting audience as well. Yeah, that makes so much sense. So um, going back to uh, the world of Molly Fool, like it sounds like obviously you had an interest in media. You went and got your master's in it and then got in with, with Motley Fool. Did you always have an interest in investing or was that kind of secondary? That was secondary. My interest in investing was minimal at best when I started working at the Motley Fool in 1997. And one of the things I love about working at the company, and it's always been the case, is there was um, an encouragement throughout the company for everyone, regardless of what their job was, to learn about investing. Uh, it was just a very open culture in terms of um, encouraging people to be intellectually curious and ask questions and and be upfront about, um, you know, the, really, really putting into practice the idea that there is no such thing as a dumb question, you know, just just come out with uh, even the most basic things like, well, what is a P ratio and how do you calculate, you know, right. just um, really try and encourage people to, to get over that hurdle. Um, you know, one of those things that when you're a kid and you're in school, the three words that just strike terror in your heart are, I don't know. You don't want to, right. you don't want to be the kid in class who says, who admits, I don't know the answer. And it's only when you're an adult that you realize, no, there's actually a, a, a lot of power and a lot of strength that comes from just admitting that and saying, no, I, I don't know this. Can you teach me? Um, and it, it's, uh, it, it can be good for you, uh, but also uh, good for whatever partnerships that you have, whether it's inside your organization or outside. Yeah, so interesting. Um, you know, and in conscious leadership, we call that no reverse learner, right? And this having this learner mindset, there's a word in Japanese, shoshin, you know, having that, that beginner's mind. Right. And and I feel like that's, you know, starting to get more and more celebration these days. And going back to the beginner, the beginner's mind of walking into a Motley Fool. How many how big how many people were at Motley Fool when you got there in 97? There are about 40 people when I started working. There. Wow, that's a really much. And how big are you guys right now? About 600. Yeah, so that's so that. So, I mean, uh, people don't think about that, but but that's, you know, 15 X, right? So that's like the difference between a thousand person organization and a 15,000 person organization. You know, that's a, that's a huge difference. And and I, my former company, we, we grew it from about 30 to a thousand people. And when you start, you know, that's, those are two different businesses. Those are two different businesses, five times over, <laughs> you know? So, so having going into a Motley Fool at 40 people, you know, and, and, you know, it's interesting, a question for you, I guess, because it sounds like you, when I did research on this, you guys partnered with AOL, which was, you know, they were an up and coming behemoth at, you know, 94, they, they were new, but, but by the late nineties, they were really a beast. Right. Um, and so, you know, I think if someone was trying to go into media back then, it's not like you would have been like, yeah, I'm going to pick this random company with 40 people in it that you never heard of, to, you know, versus an AOL or Time Warner or these or NBC or something like that. So, like, what prompted you, what attracted you to Motley Fool versus these big, like, media conglomerates? I really loved the scrappiness of the organization. I loved the mission of really trying to demystify Wall Street. Um, and again, I never had any formal education when it came to investing. Um, and I really identified with um, what David and Tom Gardner and Eric Rideholm, the third co-founder, um, uh, and uh, Gary Hill, uh, who was the CFO at the time, um, just the, the leadership of the company, they were really trying to um, – 
almost shake the world, and in particular, uh, uh, Americans, out of this idea that had been drummed into everyone's head for decades. And the idea was investing is really hard. You shouldn't try and do it yourself. It's unbelievably complicated. You shouldn't do it. Um, you should let the professionals help you with this. And really what The Motley Fool was was born out of was, was that idea of like, no, actually, the math required to be good at investing is the math we all learned in grade yeah. school. It's not advanced trigonometry. It, it's not physics. It's multiplication, division, addition, subtraction. It's the basics. And really reorienting mindsets from stocks to businesses, from getting people to stop thinking about stocks as a piece of paper that you trade and think about instead about you're becoming part owner of a right. business. And, and all of that really uh, was just so compelling to me. And I just thought, yeah, I want to be a part of what this company is trying to do. That's so cool. It's, it's funny. So I've, uh, there's a, I can't remember the name of it, but it's like a, it's a thing for kids, right? And it's basically like a, like debit card and you like do their allowance on it, right? It's, it's a newer thing. And I got little kids. I got an eight year old and 12 year old. And so, but in this thing, and, and it, gosh, it's killing me. I pulled out if, if I wasn't blanking on the name of it right now, you get, you can invest in stocks. Like you buy like fractional pieces of stock. So I, my eight year old like loves Tesla, like wants me to buy a Tesla. He's like, dad, you got to buy a Tesla. And I'm like, listen, I don't want to buy a Tesla, but you can buy Tesla stock. And he's like, really? I'm like, yeah, you can own part of the company, man. So he owns Tesla stock and, and dur during, you know, during, um, like Halloween last year, I'm like, Hey, like, do you want to invest in some chocolate, man? So we bought like a little bit of Hershey's. And so I, so I'm trying to teach him what you're talking about right now, which is to your point, you're not buying a scrap of paper or a share of the stock. You're, you're an owner in that company. You're a shareholder. Like it's, if you own enough shares, you would be, you would control the company in some companies. Right. So, you know, when you think of like the, like your transition from going into this investor, when you start looking at, um, you know, this idea of what we're talking about right now, which is financial literacy, how do you feel about, you know, the state of financial literacy and, 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 and how Motley Fool plays into making that, I guess, more, more abundant and more available to the general population? Uh, I, I like what we're trying to do for in terms of financial literacy. It's always been one of the parts of our business that I, I love the most. And, you know, we're a for-profit business, but so much of, of our content is freely available. You know, the podcast um, is, is available for anyone to download. Um, fool.com is our main website, and there are hundreds of articles published every week, um, uh, most of them being about individual companies and and uh, but I, in terms of the state of financial literacy, I really thought we'd be further along. Like if you had asked me in 1997, where do you think financial literacy is going to be in 25 years, and where do you think stock ownership for Americans is going to be in 25 years? I would have said without hesitating, both are going to be much more significant. And in fact, when it comes to stock ownership, we're still about where we were 25 years ago. I think it's slightly higher, but it's, you know, just over 50% of Americans own stock um, either directly or through some sort of retirement planning, um, a 401k plan, uh, 403b, that sort of thing. Um, I, I really thought we'd be further along. So, you know, part of me thinks we're doing better. Uh, but we still have a lot of work to do. do, you, do you, and do you think it's that 
people don't understand it? Or do you think it's that, that we live in a country where, you know, majority of the population lives paycheck to paycheck. So this idea of buying so, some investment, investing in some stock is like, yeah, I, I don't have any extra money, but, or else I do it. You know, what do you think that is? Yeah. I think for, for, a, a, a you know, a significant portion of people, it's absolutely what you just said, Darius. It's people are living paycheck to paycheck. Their prior, their financial priorities are not on investing for the future. Um, but there's also um, a significant chunk of people who do have the means um, to save, uh, to invest. And I think, um, you know, part of it is, um, you know, the, the most, <laughs> as, as my friend Morgan Housel says, when people think about being a millionaire, they don't think about having a million dollars. They think about how much fun it would be to spend a million dollars. And and let's face it, that's the fun part of money True. is the spending of the money. So I think, you know, there there are a number of barriers that people need to get over before they start sort of putting money away. Um, and, and it's not taught in schools the way it should be. Um, I, I really think and, – and even – the way it's taught in some schools um, where there are stock market investing contests, I understand the the appeal of that from from the teacher's standpoint, from a curriculum standpoint. But from an investing standpoint, it, it inadvertently teaches the wrong lesson because it's we're going to have a contest and it's, um, you know, who can pick a stock and in 10 weeks, whichever stock has gone up yeah. the most – that person wins. It's like, that's a yeah. terrible lesson for kids who are better suited to benefit from long-term investing than uh, certainly people like me in their mid-50s. Yeah, that's, that's it. like, you're like, boss, can I trick, can I buy uh, the Bitcoin ETF? Um, because, <laughs> right. because there's like, like literally it's like, I want literally the most highest alpha and I don't care if it goes to zero, you know, yeah. like that's how you win that, 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 yeah. uh, that competition to your point. Like that is the opposite of a long-term perspective, right? You're literally stock picking based off of what something's going to do in 10 weeks. And, and, you know, it's, it's like short termism. It's not this idea that, Oh, like go the other way. Like what do you want to own forever? And yeah, I may have the, may, if I'm teaching that class, I'm saying you can't, you can't tell what a business is going to do in 10 weeks. You can tell what it's going to do in 10 years, right. you know, like maybe if they have the right leadership and the right strategy, you're not going to see that in 10 weeks. I love, I love that idea. What, um, so, you know, going back to this, um, you know, idea of investing and, and I guess the role media plays in it. So you're actively involved in, you know, one of the most popular podcasts in the world when it comes to investing, you know, I look at, you know, I'm a, I'm a avid cons cons consumer consumptor of, of financial media. Um, like, like I geek out on it all the time. And, and one of the things I've noticed is, it, it, unfortunately, at least this is my perspective at the moment, is you have it's, – it's almost like what, what we're seeing politically in this country where the extremes get all the – get the talk time, right? Where, oh, I, the, the ultra bear and the ultra bull are the ones that people want to hear from, right? And 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 the more logical middle, the boring Charlie Mungers of the world and Warren Buffett's like you know the only reason people want to hear from Charlie's because he's so wealthy, right? And he's done so well over you know ninety years. But but yet I hear people and a lot of these people are just straight up talking heads, saying interest rates ten percent, 
50, 80% stock market crash, you know, and, and you see it and it's like just clickbait and it's all over. And I, and I, I remember I was looking at this and I'm like, this is, you know, this is totally irresponsible. <laughs> like it's not like, like to, to, and, and that's, and I get it because it's fear and greed, right? We're pushing this idea of fear and greed. So like, what are your thoughts around, I guess, overcoming that A and B around the fact that it exists the way it does? The good news for invest kind of like earlier in the conversation where we were talking about, you know, just the medium of radio and for younger listeners, they're like, what radio, who like my grandpa <laughs> listens to talk radio, you know, that sort of thing. Um, it's the same way in investing that there are, there are things that used to exist 25 years ago that when I talk to younger investors, they look at me like I'm crazy. It's like, what do you mean? stocks used to have fractions attached to them. You know, it's like the, the movie Wall Street from 1987 is a classic film. It, it, it still holds up. But, you know, there are some things in there that, that have changed. And one of them is when the ticker goes by, it's like, oh, this stock is trading at 52 and yeah. three eighths, you know, that, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so I, I think of it this way, Darius, the, the good news for investors today is there's more information available than ever before because wall street really used to be a closed system and it was so difficult to get information for individual investors like you and me so the good news is we we have more information at our fingertips than ever before that's also the bad news because it can be so distracting and and you know part of what we try and do um on our podcast is really try and separate the signal from the noise because there's, you know, there's so much information. You can get uh, Starbucks latest earnings report anywhere. Um, and so what we try and do in our show is, is sort of dig into like, okay, well, what, what do we think this means? Because um, you're right. There's, there's, if, if I were a producer of uh, television on, you know, daytime on Bloomberg or CNBC or Fox Business, I would absolutely go looking for a bull and a bear. You know, because that's sort right. of the classic thing. Um, and, you know, the more hyperbole, the better. Um, but uh, in general, the, you know, the more time you can spend with a business, the more time you can spend with a story, um, the greater your ability to sort of get beyond the shouting and the headlines and find out like, okay, well, where is this business going? You know, you had mentioned something earlier about um, sort of the, I, I think you used the word forever. Um, in, in sort of looking out in terms of investing. Um, and that's, that's part of, of what we try and do is, is look at something like, don't tell me about what's hot right now. Tell me about sort of where is the world going? What direction is it going in? And do we think there's going to be more of this trend in the future or less of this trend? Um, you know, I've made uh, the joke before that one of the reasons I own shares of Sherwin-Williams yeah. the paint company about as boring a business as you can find is because um, in the history of the world, no one has ever walked into a new home or a new apartment and said the following sentence out loud. All these colors look great and I'm not changing any of them. <laughs> like people are like, that's, ne that's never going to change Darius. It's never going to change. We're always going to be picking new paint colors. Yeah. And so why not own a few shares of um, a company with a track record like Sherwin-Williams? And so that's, you know, increasingly in my investing life, and that's what I'm trying to do is look for the things that I think 
are, uh, you know, almost undeniable in terms of this is something that is going to keep yeah. going. This is not going to change because technology changes. You, you earlier uh, you talked about yeah. AOL. AOL used to be not only the most dominant internet service provider in America, it it changed the way we access information. The 1990s was the decade when America got online. So who better than AOL to, to benefit from that? And now AOL is something you need to explain yeah, to younger I people. I love when I see people have AOL um, email addresses still. I'm like, it's like driving a classic car. <laughs> you know? Yes. Yes. It's, what it's, is that? That's a 67 Chevy. <laughs> Yeah, I love exactly. it. Um, and, yeah, and you're making such a great point. It's that, you know, that's this timelessness of investing in, 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 in you know, I, I hadn't heard that, that, that corollary before regarding Sherwin Williams, but it's a great point. Like I was talking to my wife yesterday because we we're having to match paints for a building we own in San Francisco that we picked the wrong color white and we have to go repaint the whole kitchen. So to your point, like no one's ever going to stop painting their houses. The question is, is, is how much they're going to repaint them, right? It's not if or when. I say this thing about haircuts. It's like, yeah, like haircut business isn't going anywhere. You know, like, like, like I'm not going to let a robot cut my hair anytime soon that I can uh, probably agree on. And even then, there's still going to be a business involved. So it's a question, will, will a human be the one doing it? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. In the world of successful partnerships, names like Procter & Gamble, Ben & Jerry, and supply and demand echo through business history. But when it comes to growing your business, who are the perfect partners? That's you and Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. We're talking from launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the, did we hit a million dollar order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling shipping supplies or promoting productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Picture this, a time when my business was facing a tough hurdle and I wasn't sure how to break through. But then came the breakthrough moment, a game changer that took my business to the next level. You know, what I absolutely adore about Shopify is its unparalleled ability to adapt and grow with your ambitions. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 75 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Darius, all lowercase. That's D-A-R-I-U-S. Go to shopify.com slash Darius now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Darius. Hey, business leaders and decision makers, get ready to supercharge your success with the ultimate source of business leadership, wisdom, Harvard Business Review. Harvard Business Review is your daily dose of practical advice for better business management. Visit hbr.org for the latest articles like The Art of Setting Expectations as a Project Manager or AI can help you ask better questions and solve bigger problems. But this isn't just a list. I personally found the article on AI absolutely mind-blowing. It changed how I approach technology and analytics, providing real-world tools for better decision-making. And don't miss the HBR Magazine, 
It's published six times a year, offering timeless insights around crucial management themes. Perfect for those moments when you just you know want to get away from the screen and dive deep into some transformative content. But wait, there's more. HBR delivers top-notch podcasts, videos, and real-world case studies. From HBR on leadership to the big idea, HBR covers it all, providing invaluable insights from the best in the business. Harvard Business Review has been a game changer for me. It's challenged my thinking and made me a more effective leader. And don't forget the newsletters. Stay up to date on a variety of business topics, ensuring you're always in the know. Ready to elevate your leadership game? Dive into hbr.org, explore their podcasts, read their magazines. The wealth of knowledge is at your fingertip. While much of Harvard Business Review's content is available for free after signing up at their site, subscriptions to unlimited content start at only $10 a month. Go to hbr.org forward slash subscriptions and enter the promo code greatness right now to take advantage of this great offer. Again, go to www.hbr.org forward slash subscriptions and enter the promo code greatness to learn more about this great opportunity to help manage your career and your business. Hey folks, Darius Mershazade here from the greatness machine, your go-to podcast for unlocking your full potential. Now, You've heard me talk about the power of effective communication, right? It's the key to amplifying your influence, engaging others, and really making your mark in the world well. Well, hold on to your hats because I have something special for you today. Economist Education has rolled out a game-changing course on business writing and storytelling that's going to take your communication skills to the next level. Picture this. Economist Education provides online executive education courses built on the expertise and analytical rigor of the economist itself. These aren't your run-of-the-mill classes, folks. We're talking about two to six weeks online programs designed to empower business professionals like you to thrive in a changing world and workplace. These courses feature senior editors from The Economist and invited experts who dish out the insights on the latest developments in the business world. It's like having a VIP pass to the forefront of knowledge. When you sign up, you get a three-month digital subscription to The Economist to support your learning journey. But here's the kicker, my friends. Get 15% off any course from The Economist Education exclusively available through my URL, education.economist.com forward slash greatness. And don't forget to enter the promo code greatness at registration to unlock your discount. This offer ends on March 31st. So you better hustle if you want to seize this opportunity now. Don't wait until it's too late. So for 15% off any course from the Economist Education, head over to education.economist.com forward slash greatness right now and use the promo code greatness at registration. Your future self will thank you for it now. Hey gang, Darius Mashaza here. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. So listen, I know we have a lot of CEOs, entrepreneurs, and business owners out there that listen to the show. And right now, if you're one of those folks and you're doing, let's call it a bare minimum of seven figures and above in your business, then what I'd like to do is give you an offer right now. How would you like to get your hands on the frameworks that I actually used to scale my last company, which started off as a small little seven-figure company to over $100 million in annual revenue? And I did it in less than two years, and I did it without costly growing pains, without the headaches that, that you usually experience when you are scaling your businesses. So if you're one of those folks and you're trying to grow your company, but you're, you're finding yourself stuck in that day-to-day, if you're one of the listeners and you're getting grinded, this is your respite from getting grinded on your business, you're listening to our show, and you're dealing with the breakdowns, you're dealing with inefficiencies, and you know, you've know you got that firefighter suit on and all the problems lying on your desk, and you're, you're not doing the work you're supposed to be doing, which is working on the business instead of in it, then what I'm about to talk to you about for the next call 60 seconds, this is precisely for you. 
Real quickly though, if you don't already know this about me, prior to starting The Greatness Machine, I spent 20 years of my life as a founder and CEO of real world companies. And during that time, I actually grew my companies to over $1.2 billion with a B in bootstrap revenue. In fact, uh, we scaled out my last company from 30 to 1,000 employees, and we did it in just 36 months. And we did it all by using a three-step framework that I call my scale map method. So that, of course, brings us to the purpose of this here mid-roll ad. Yes, this is what the podcast producers call these things. Recently, I created a 30-minute training, and what it does is it walks you step-by-step through all of my scale map method frameworks, and you can watch it right now for free when you go to DariusScale.com. That's my first name, Darius, scale, S-C-A-L-E.com. And what these frameworks do is they fix they simplify and they streamline every single aspect of your business. And they do it without the need for complicated scaling systems that are typically way too difficult and way too time consuming for a busy CEO like you and from my, like myself was to implement. So if you want a simple and you want a proven path to remove yourself from the day-to-day operations, just like I did, so that you can do what you're supposed to be doing, which is leading your company to record growth without the headaches and without the growing pains, go to DariusScale.com. That's www.DariusScale.com. Watch the short video, and I'll see you guys on the inside. Now, back to the show. Um, you know, I have a question for you. So, and you just kind of brought this up because, you know, and obviously Motley Fool is an example of, of this, but, you know, what advice can you give to listeners who are trying to find high quality information and commentary on, on, you know, the markets? I think a lot of people are, you know, are probably not like you and me that, you know, you spent a lot of time working at an investment investing media company where, you know, it's, it's now become a part of who you are. For me, I've, I've, I'm probably one of the small percentage of people that go get an accounting degree and then geek out on the stock market when they're in the teenager still, you know, I know that we're not the norm. The norm is it's intimidating. They're afraid. They think they're going to lose their money. Um, you know, where can people find high quality media so that they can go and start to get more comfortable or if they are comfortable with it, what would be sources that you love that where people can get that high quality information? There's no shortage of information out there. I think part of it is, you know, it's a little bit akin to, um, I'm, I'm a fan of movies. Um, it's a little bit akin to um, finding a movie reviewer who you sort of sync with. Because, uh, you know, there are times where I'll read a movie review and I'll think, oh, okay, great. And then you find out just, you know, just like in school, there are professors right. who are easy graders. There are movie reviewers who are easy. It's like, this movie was terrible. What were they talking about? You know, that sort of thing. So I think, I think part of it is just finding um, sources that sort of fit your temperament. There is no one size fits all. You know, the, the, um, one of my colleagues says, um, when it comes to personal finance, it's much more Definitely. personal than finance. Because everybody's situation is different. Um, everybody's risk tolerance is different. And that's okay. So I, I think part of it for people who are just starting out and, and looking to get started investing is just sort of figuring out, okay, what, what is my tolerance? And, and tolerance is something that is revealed to you over time. Because in general, people, uh, they, they tend to get their tolerance wrong. You think, you know, and, and it goes both ways. There are people who think they have a really high tolerance and then the market drops like it did right. in the first half of this year. 
and then they can't sleep at night and it's it's really bothering them. It's like, okay, so so what have we learned? We've learned your tolerance right. is not as high as it was. Um, and I think part of it is, is, you know, so that's part of it is just sort of figuring out what your tolerance is. And then also, um, as a general rule of thumb, the businesses that have been the best performing stocks for me are the businesses that I understand yeah. the best. So that's another misconception about investing that we've been trying to knock down for 25 plus years. Because the again, it's the it's the myth of somebody whispers a, a, a ticker symbol or it's it's some company and they do this thing and you can't I can't really explain what they do. They're this high tech or they're doing gene splicing or whatever it is. When really some of the best performing businesses not only are all around us, they're they're businesses that are easy to understand. Um, my best performing stock yeah. is Starbucks. It's a coffee company. I mean, it's I mean, it's it's a lem it's the lemonade stand that we all right. started when we were kids, except they're selling a legally addictive product. Um, so I, I I would start with those two things: is like try to figure out what your tolerance is, and start with companies that you understand the business. Um, David Gardner, uh, who's one of the co-founders of the Motley Fool has his own weekly podcast, which I recommend as well, called Rule Breaker Investing. Um, you know, David has said for a long time that the, the first two questions to ask about any business are questions that anyone can ask. And the first question is, yeah. how does this company make money? Um, and if and if the answer to that is highly right. convoluted <laughs> and to the point where you don't understand it, then maybe go find another company to to ask that question about. The first question is, how does this company make more money? And the second question is, how do they plan yeah. to make more money in the future? Because that's what's going to reward shareholders, their ability to generate more profits in the future. Um, but yeah, I think I think the uh, start with businesses that you can wrap your head around. Um, you know, one of one of the smartest people on our investing team. Um, I remember talking with him years ago. And we were talking about the big banks, like the big Wall Street banks, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, you know, City, Bank of America. And uh, he said, I don't invest in those. I was like, really? You've never? He said, no. I said, why not? And he said, because I, I feel like yeah. I don't have an advantage. I don't. I, there is a black box element to the way the big banks make money. And so I'm not going to spend my time trying to unlock that yeah, black it's, box. Well, it, especially like you start looking at like a... JP Morgan Chase, right? The trillions under management. It's like, yeah. to your point, it's uh, there's a, there's a quote that I learned uh, about a decade ago, which which you reminded me of it earlier on the show, which is there's margin and mystery, right? And and it's like these banks, like I I have a banking background. I ran a a, a large servicing mortgage bank that I built with my business partners, and I look at some of the ways we made money, and it would blow your mind. It's because, you know, we had a hundred billion dollars of mortgages that were, you know, collecting their payments and you get a float, you know, on between the time that you collect their taxes and you got to pay their taxes. Right. And I'm like, that's, and those are like, that was the easy, that was like a majority of some of the revenue that came in through the door, not the actual work you do. And then the banks are like, no, they're, they're, that's how, that's the game. When you start looking at big banks, it's, it's around how much do you have in there that you can kind of like divvy up. Right. Um, I have a question for you, though, and, and this is, you know, I think it's kind of uh, the timing of, of, of this conversation is interesting. You know, in the investing world, you know, <clears throat> you and I have been through a few cycles. I'm in my, my 40s. 
well, sounds like you're in your fifties. Um, you know, we've seen a few cycles and, and in this last cycle, I'm in a, a couple investing investment groups and I, and I kept finding myself saying, everyone's rich now, you know, it's like, like, a, a lot, <laughs> and, all those, and I live in Austin, Texas, which there's a ton of crypto. What maybe there's less now, but there's, I heard 80,000 crypto millionaires that were made last year that have now lost their status as crypto millionaires. Um, when you guys start looking at, you know, the trends, I mean, it feels very similar to the, you know, 1997, 98, you know, first.com where you're in this, this early stage technology, at, there's tons of people jump running to it. What are you guys, you know, what's, what is your position, you know, as a media outlet for investing when it comes to this world of crypto and you guys are seeing like, like, what's your guys take on that? Uh, so, this is my opportunity to point out that um, one of the words in my company's <laughs> name is Motley, um, so which uh, we interpret uh, as colorful and diverse. So there is a, a diversity of opinion when it comes to crypto. Um, I don't invest in crypto because I don't invest in any currency. Um, I invest in stocks and ETFs. Um, so in general, we don't talk a lot about crypto on the podcast. Um, but we, you know, we have people who cover it. Um, there are certainly articles on, on fool.com, uh, that sort of thing. It, you know, to go back to my colleague, when he was talking about big banks, there's an element to crypto that I just sort of don't get in the same way that I, I but also it, it, uh, part of it, I, I'm just chalking up to time. Right. It's like, how do I want to spend my time as an investor? And I feel like my time is much better spent looking at companies, uh, the companies that I own shares of, but, you know, the ones that are on my watch list, that sort of thing. Um, I, I definitely don't have an, any sort of advantage when it comes to crypto or, or currencies in general. So I generally stay away from it. Um, the bread and butter of what we do on the show is about stocks. And so do you have, stocks uh, I, I appreciate that, that input, because it, I do think that there's a lot and we, 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 I have a little bit of crypto, but we, I've interviewed a few people who are experts in it and it's, it's the wild west, man. It's, it's, I mean, it's cool. I think that there's from a, you know, again, I come from a financial services background. I look at it and I'm like this, yeah, this is probably the future of how financial transactions operate on blockchain, right? The, the currency side of it, the TBD might be zero, right? But, but the, the, the technology itself, I think is, is interesting. Um, you know, going to, um, you know, back to this idea of, of what we are listening to, you know, are there any, you know, I, I mean, I'm a, I'm, I'm a fan of a lot of, of the different perspectives out there. Like I mentioned earlier, I, I'm a huge fan of Warren Buffett's and Charlie Munger's on the other side of the, of the, te of, of the fence is someone like a Ray Dalio, who is, you know, I feel like they're both, there's a lot of sage wisdom amongst those three names, but they have very, very different perspectives of what's going to happen in the world. One is much more optimistic, much, much more pessimistic, you know, and then you see people like Kathy Wood, who, who gets, you know, so much, you know, of the oxygen in the room. And, and, and so, and I'm not a fan of the, of, of hers, but, you know, when you start to look at the different, you know, when you guys are, I guess, looking at the different, um, I guess people who are considered the leaders of the investment space right now, you know, who, who do you guys like, who do you guys maybe not want to give so much attention to? If are you, are you a liberty of saying that? I, I really appreciate the way you have just laid this out, Darius, because it's, it's, um, it's something that I think is easy for people to miss when it comes to 
the financial media. And this is true of people. And I think this is true of companies too, that there are, there are some that just take up a ton of oxygen and so much attention and, and, you know, to, to depersonalize it. Um, I think Twitter is a good example of a company that gets an outsized amount of tension, uh, attention considering right. its size as a public company and its track record as a business. It hasn't been great. Um, I understand why Apple and Microsoft and Amazon get the attention they do. It's crazy. The fact that Twitter gets the attention it does, I think, is due to a, a variety of things, including the fact that a lot of people, myself included, um, use Twitter. I, I, I find it to be a help, helpful tool in following news and finding information. Um, but as a business, it's um, it's not that great. Um, so in a couple of weeks, we're going to have an event for our members. Um, it's our first in-person event in three years. And one of the people who's going to be appearing is Michael Mobison, who's an investor who is not really a household name. He certainly doesn't get the attention that Kathy Wood or, or Bill Ackman get. Um, but I, I, I would put Michael Mobison on the short list of um, investors that people on the Motley Fool's investing team would love to have mm -hmm. dinner with, <laughs> you know, just sort of listen to, pick their brain, that sort of thing. Um, and so I, I would put Mobison on that list. You mentioned Charlie Munger and Buffett. Um, it, it's not just their track record, um, which is impressive, um, given their age, um, but it's also something else you keyed on, uh, Darius, and it's their optimism. I think fundamentally, if you're going to be an investor, um, there is an element of optimism that you need to adopt. Um, I, I mean, what what is investing if not an act of optimism? It's economic optimism. I believe this company is going to be more valuable in the future and will reward shareholders more in the future than it does today. Um, so I think trying to find those people, it's not to say that you want people who go through the world with rose colored glasses and, and everything's going to be awesome. Cause you, you know, as to go back to what we were talking about earlier, you're always going to find those extremes. It's easy to find right. the, the extreme bulls and the extreme bears. And I think you're better served as an investor. If you can find people who are sort of in that middle where they're able to, provide some nuance, provide the risk factors like, yeah, I'm bullish on this company, but there's a scenario where they really get hit and here's what that looks like. Um, so I think, I think finding those people um, and they're, they're usually not yellers. Michael Mobison, really smart guy. Can't recall ever yeah, seeing him raise his that. voice once. It's the moderate in the room. <laughs> um, so, you know, uh, you know, yeah. talking about this, I guess this world of investing and even, you know, even what you just said right now, you know, I, I, I think that, we have a machine that's not built. It's built. I, I, I think that there's, a, you know, Munger says, you know, show me incentives. I'll show you people's behavior. Right. And, and, and so we have, you know, you can tell I'm obviously a fan of those guys. And so um, I believe we have a system that disincentivizes long-term behavior. I believe that we have a, a system that incentivizes the loudest, squeakiest oily rooms and the, you know, voices in the room, right. The squeaky wheels. And, 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 and I think we also have a system that disincentives, disincentivizes long-termism for shareholders, right? It's, it's, this is about, you know, this is around, it's not about the stakeholder necessarily. It's around meeting that 13 week mark, that estimate you said you're going to put out. Right. And what I've been, you know, I, I wrote a book, um, 
two years ago, next month called the core value equation. And I, I'm a CEO and entrepreneur. And my, my belief is that core value driven companies are going to overtake the markets over the next decade. And the reason I believe that is because price technology has become much more commoditized and that what separates a good company from a great company or a mediocre company from a great company is the people that are, are there to make it happen. And, I, and, I, and I'll follow my sword all day long for that. I was having a conversation with a good friend of mine who's the CIO at, um, at a firm here in Austin. And, and I said, I said, look, I, I think that there's a place for you know, building portfolios around values-driven organizations. I believe that this is what's going to be the next leg in our investment world. What are your thoughts around this? It's one of the reasons I asked about what your values are because I'm a core value evangelist, but what are your thoughts around where values, like where there, is there a place for this in the investing world? There absolutely is. And I, I think um, it it may not be the place a lot of people think it is. Uh, I think when a lot of people hear the word values attached to investing, they think of right, um, you know, ESG, environmental, social, you know, corporate governance, that sort of thing, um, and they automatically go to, well, this is an ETF. And all the companies in it um, have pledged to reduce their carbon footprint uh, by 50% in the next 20 years or, you know, whatever, that sort of thing. Um, to me, um, the place I'm more interested in as an investor is uh, to key in on a, a word you just used. And it's, it's sort of the, the whole stakeholder approach. I think about a business like Costco, where uh, Jim Senegal, the co-founder and, and longtime CEO, he's no longer the CEO, but longtime CEO, um, Senegal took, uh, I would argue, a values-based approach to running Costco. Um, it's just that it wasn't necessarily about the environment uh, or climate, you know, or, or, or anything like that. It was around things like, it, it was clear that the company had a set of values. Um, so, um, so there were, you know, just a couple of examples uh, for anyone who's uh, ever shopped at Costco. They know this. Um, if you're a Costco member, um, you you shop there and they have their own um, in-house brand, Kirkland. And uh, I remember interviewing Senegal and asking him one time, you know, look, this this is working out for you. This is how, how big is this going to get? Would you ever spin off Kirkland into its own store? And he was very quick to say no. No, because we, because we're we're going to cap the amount of products that are Kirkland branded because our partners matter to us. We can't we, we don't want to cannibalize our partners. Um, so the our uh, the people who shop here expect to have some choices. They didn't come here just to shop at Kirkland stuff. Although we we take pride in the Kirkland branded stuff that we make. But we're not going to do that. Um, and even something as symbolic yeah. as the um, the hot dog and soda. At, uh, at Costco, which is a dollar fifty, and Senegal, you know, w before he stepped down as CEO, uh, he said that no, it's never gonna, it's always gonna be a dollar fifty. Um, <laughs> he said maybe after I'm dead, like he would make that joke, like you know, when I'm, you know, you know, if I, I, someone asked him one time, like, oh, you know, w what would you say if if you heard that the price of the hot dog and soda was going up, <laughs> and he said, "Oh, I would be dead." That's 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 my yes. assumption because they'll do it over my dead body. But it really is that approach. The other, the last thing on Costco is Costco's commitment to their customers is we're never going to mark up anything in the store more than fifteen percent. Never. 
And when Senegal would do quarterly conference calls with Wall Street analysts, invariably one of them would try to get him to commit to raising that. They would say, look, you know, you, we, I've run the numbers. It, you don't even have to increase it that much. Increase it to 16%, 17%. It's just one or two percentage points. It doesn't really matter. Your customers aren't going to notice. And Senegal's like, no, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to do that to our customers. We've made this commitment. And so when I think about, you know, values uh, in a business, uh, that's yeah, the company. Orange, it, and the that was the company I was thinking of before you said it, by the way. <laughs> and, 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 you know, I saw this, I think it was in um, Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers, where they were talking, where they compared the, the Costco stock to um, to G, GE stock. Now, and this was written a while ago when GE was, um, you know, performing much better. But when you look at it over a 30-year period, it's like one of the best stocks ever when you look at it over that time period and beat people that had crushed it for maybe even 10 or 20 years. Um, and it just has this upward trend. And, and I, yeah. I do believe that, that, you, you know, there's a discipline around it because he's got it, you know, you as a leader have to go and, and fly in the face of, and I do think this is where the CEO matters, right? Because if the CEO was worried about the quarter and not worried about the decade, they would they would change every single thing you just said. It'd be three dollar hot dogs five years ago. It would be three dollar cokes. You know, maybe we're at four bucks on hot dogs right now because of inflation. You know, that'd be a seven dollar meal, not a two dollar meal. And that fifteen percent would have been seventeen percent with with a bat of an eye, right? And this is what most of these other companies do. And and then I believe what it does is it sends this message to everyone that this is a transaction. This is not a relationship, right? And 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 by the way. Your transaction. And then what does a consumer do? They go, fine, you're a transaction too. I'm going to shop you against Amazon. And if you're more expensive by a buck, I'm buying from somewhere else. So I, I, I really appreciate what you just said because I think that it, the stakeholder mindset, which I'm a firm believer in, disincentivizes the short-term thinking. But at the same time, you know, it, it, you have to have that discipline. You have to be able to have like even courage to say, yeah, I don't care, analyst from, you know, Goldman, like go pound sand, right? And and so, what do you think? Like when you think of, you know, mo and I think this is like what we're talking about right now is completely the the, the exception, right? What do you think it's going to take for that to become the norm? Because I think what we're, we have a crisis right now. It's being created by this transaction ship that we see on Wall Street. When you're hiring for small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. When I needed to expand my team, I wanted more than just resumes. I wanted quality professionals who were the perfect fit for our culture and goals. And LinkedIn Jobs delivered just that. LinkedIn Jobs isn't just another job board. LinkedIn Jobs has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get qualified candidate within 24 hours. They understand the challenges small businesses face, which is why they're constantly innovating to make the hiring process easier. And just recently, LinkedIn launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions in a snap. Trust me, I've used it. It's like having a personal assistant to guide you through the process, making it quicker and more efficient than ever before. And let me tell you, it made all the difference. With LinkedIn's help, I've been able to attract top talent and build a team that's truly exceptional. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash greatness. That's linkedin.com forward slash greatness to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. 
Ever walked into a place and instantly felt drawn in by the scent? Let me share a recent shopping experience. It was a crisp morning and I decided to browse through a new store that had just opened in the neighborhood. As I stepped inside, a refreshing scent of citrus and pine greeted me, instantly lifting my mood and making me feel welcome. As I explored the aisles, the pleasant aroma lingered, enhancing my shopping experience and making it more enjoyable. It made me realize how much scent can influence our perception of a store and how it can make a difference in our overall experience. For stores using scent strategically, that can help them stand out from the competition and create a welcoming environment that keeps customers coming back. If you've ever been in a Banana Republic, Abercrombie, Marriott, or Weston, you know how fragrance can take your experience from good to incredible. Scent Air guided stores, hotels, event spaces, and other businesses in creating fragrance experiences that encourage customers to spend more, stay longer, and leave them happier, ultimately enabling businesses to stand out among their competitors. The secret behind scent marketing is that it's more than just filling your space with a nice scent. Scent Air is proven to increase earned revenue up to 9%, keep customers in your business up to 18% longer, and boost customer satisfaction up to 20% more. Give customers an experience they won't forget with Scent Air's professional quality fragrances designed for businesses just like yours. Go to scentair.com forward slash greatness to learn how you can save 25% off your first Whisper Max diffuser and explore other great deals today. I think that uh, time is the great healer in this situation, that the longer, you know, in the same way that the longer you invest in the stock market, the the greater uh, the chances of your reward. Um, uh, you know, the market can drop in any 6, 12, 18 month period. But, you know, if you if you hold in for 10, 20, if your time, if your time horizon is 10, 20, 30 years instead of 10, 20, 30 months, um, you're going to be much better off. And I, I, I do think that. Um, eventually the businesses like Costco begin to separate themselves. And um, it's, it's just so much harder for those uh, flash in the pan businesses to compete. Um, but you, but you're right. It, it, you know, it's, it's not as common as it should be. And it's, uh, you, you hear the phrase, you know, win-win uh, scenario where it's like, Hey, here's a partnership. We're both going to win. That's easy to say. It's a lot harder to put into practice. Um, you know, I remember, uh, uh, I forget what the business was, but I remember, you know, for Costco doesn't carry a ton of inventory. Like if you go in to buy ketchup, right. you're going to get two or three choices. That's it. So they don't, you know, and the, the vendors who sell those products, they really want to be in Costco. So they're going to, um, make their pitch um, to Costco's benefit. And I forget the business, but I remember hearing a story one time about a business that was pitching to get their product inside of Costco and they were about to close the deal. And Senegal had one of his people run the numbers and basically figured out that this company is going to go out of business in a couple of years because they're, they've basically pitched us a plan where they're losing money. And that's like, and so then in two years, they're going to be out of business. We're going to have to go find another vendor. So they went back and were like, hey, look, um, we like you. Um, well, let's figure out a way to make this work so yeah. that you're not losing money on every transaction. Um, so it's, I, 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 I uh, maybe this is a flaw, but I'm, I'm fundamentally optimistic that um, quality wins out over time and that the businesses that are just like, ah, no, the, you know, we're just going to try and screw our customers and screw our partners. And it's like, Definitely. okay, that can work for a short amount of time. 
but I I don't know of uh, anyone doing that over a 10, 20 year period and it working for them. You know, it's like Ponzi schemes. Like yeah, eventually it's got to be, it's going to fall apart. means that everyone needs to make money or else there is no, no business. Right. And like, like I, I've yet to find, I mean, there are definitely are like tech companies that never make a profit <laughs> that we could go into, but, but uh, you know, that's not what the idea that they won't at some point, um, man. Well, here we are at top of the hour. You know, I mean, obviously you, you guys uh, have so much going on over at Motley Fool Money and at Motley Fool. If people want to connect with you guys or learn more about uh, the shows, like what's the best place for them to learn more? Uh, whatever podcast app uh, you use, you can uh, just find Motley Fool Money or you can find Rule Breaker Investing uh, with David Gardner. Um, and I'll give a shout out. Um, we, we have um, an office in Australia um, and my colleague Scott Phillips uh, in Australia hosts uh, a weekly podcast also called Motley Fool Money. Different logos, though. So um, uh, check out Motley Fool Money. If, if uh, you hear an Australian <laughs> accent at the start, uh, you've got the, the one down. Is his name but, Chris uh, as well? If you hear my voice. Oh, okay, good, good. That, that would be confusing. No, his name is Scott Phillips, um, and, he, and he's brilliant. And, and by the way, for, for any investor who's looking for – I mean, you know, we were talking earlier about, pers- you know, sort of how do you find different perspectives – um, you know, that's a show that's got a perspective on the market um, from uh, people who are in Australia, uh, smart investors in Australia. And some of the companies they're talking about are American companies, but some of them are um, international stocks that you, you're probably not going to hear about on the show that I host. So, um, so yeah, I would say uh, check out whatever wow. podcast. Chris, app you thank you to. so you much. It's, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show and to spend time with you and appreciate all the greatness you're bringing into the world. You are listening to The Greatness Machine, and that's a wrap for today. Listen, if you love what you heard, subscribe to the show on whatever podcast platform that you're tuning in on so that you don't miss any of our future episodes. We have tons of great people coming on, and we're we're stoked to have you here to enjoy it with us. Leave us a review. Tell us what you love most about this particular episode. We love getting the reviews. We love to see what you guys love most. And if this particular episode you know, made you think of someone who's leveling up in their business and in their life, print screen, share it with them. Leaders are the best givers. And after all, we're all here to support and grow with each other. And in case you want to see some of the fun behind the scenes shots or some of the things that we're doing, I'm actually writing about this in my weekly newsletter. Go to www.therealdarius.com and subscribe to my newsletter. We're talking about fun things like business and life and mindfulness and cryptocurrencies and gosh, I don't even know everything and anything, but it's tons of fun stuff I write about. I try to get it out on a weekly basis. You can subscribe at www.therealdarius.com. And with that said, look, thank you guys so much. I appreciate you. I love you. Peace. We're out of here. See you guys on the next one. Whether your resolution is to save money, eat better, or stress less, HelloFresh is here to help you do all three. Say hello to your most delicious year yet. With fresh ingredients and chef-crafted recipes at the price you'll like, delivered right to your door. Don't let recipe boredom strike because HelloFresh has more options than ever before. Dig into your biggest menu yet with over 45 dinner options to choose from weekly and even more market add-on items that suit any lifestyle. Someone who's always on the go, the convenience of having delicious and nutritious meals delivered right to my doorstep has been a game changer. I'll never forget the first time I tried HelloFresh, the excitement of unboxing fresh ingredients and the joy of cooking up a restaurant-quality meal in my own kitchen. 
It felt like I had my own personal chef minus the hefty price tag. What really hooked me was the variety of recipes they offer. From exotic cuisines to classic comfort food, HelloFresh keeps my taste buds dancing. And the best part, no more last-minute grocery runs or wasted ingredients. Everything I need is right in the box. Ready to join America's number one meal kit family? Dive into a world of flavor with HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash great free and use the code great free that g-r-e-a-t-f-r-e-e for free breakfast for life one breakfast item per box while subscription is active that's free breakfast for life at hellofresh.com slash great free with code great free this episode is brought to you by the yap media podcast network i'm hala taha ceo of the award-winning digital media empire yap media and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously, which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.